Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, we're going to be talking with Justin Legg. I met Justin through a certified interpretive guide course he took with us. He's a general manager at Binbo KOA and tour director at Binbo Historic Inn near Arcata, California. So Good morning, Tim. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You know, you were in our December certified interpretive guide course with me and Lisa. Is that correct? It is. It was a pleasure. Well, we enjoyed getting acquainted with each of you. I have to say, other than you work in the redwood trees, I don't really know that much about what you do. And uh, first of all, I'm curious, where'd you grow up and where'd you go to school? I am a Californian, so I, I kind of bounced around. I, I love people telling them that I grew up, I was born in Los Angeles, but I really feel home as the San Francisco Bay Area. We bounced from Los Angeles to Southern Oregon, lived there until about first grade, but where I really did most of my primary school, high school, and then community college was, was the San Francisco Bay Area, so I have a large affinity. I love it there. That's great. I, You know, I lived in uh, Berkeley for a very short period of time. Uh, I was a doctoral student at Berkeley in 1969, a very long time ago. I have great fondness for all of that uh, coastal area of California, but especially where the Redwoods are. So uh, it's great to talk about that today. Um, what did you think you were going to do as a career? You know, I, I don't think I even had that solidified until probably I was applying for universities after community college. Um, I remember a really specific day in high school, Tim. I was a senior in high school, and it was the, you know, introduction to economics class in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you should get your parents to give you cash and put it in this investment account, and then, you know, you'll be able to retire by the time you're 50. And then we had that one typical econ day where, okay, everybody, let's all go around the class. And what, what's your dream career? What are you studying for? Why do you want to go to college? What are you hoping to do? And I remember it came to me and I specifically said, you know, I'd love to be like a park ranger, spend time outdoors, work with people on the trail, be outside with other people. And I got a, a sideways glance from the teacher and I remember audible laughter actually from classmates and the overall response from my peers in the Bay Area was, don't, don't you realize you'll never be like a billionaire or make tons of cash working in the outdoors, doing public education with folks? And I just laughed myself as well. Like, you betcha, I, I do understand that and is absolutely not at all on my radar of things that I'm concerned about of going forward with my life. I want to be with people and do real stuff. Well, that's really cool because the joke in our field is we get paid in sunsets. <laughs> yes, I, I remember my first supervisor telling me that one. Yeah, and I, I kind of like that because it, it makes the point right up front that the motivation for becoming an interpreter or a guide or a uh, interpretive naturalist or interpretive historian is really about uh, helping people make a connection with the resource, with the special place, the story or whatever. And uh, I can tell you, I wanted to be a high school biology teacher. 
I had a teacher I admired very much in biology in high school, and I wanted to be like him. And I did student teach, and I enjoyed it. But then my first job I landed was outside as a nature camp uh, specialist. And when I realized that you could do this in the outdoors, I was never headed back to the classroom as a regular thing. So, well, that's cool. Uh, so what are you doing right now in your, what the name of your uh, organization and what it's doing with people in interpretation? Um, so since about 2016, I've been working in, in the private industry. And right now I'm with a really awesome uh, business called the Benbow Historic Inn, which is in southern Humboldt County near Avenue of the Giants, uh, highest concentration of super tall trees on earth. Uh, since about 1926, folks have been traveling up the Redwood Highway, we call it, Highway 101, from the big cities, San Francisco and Sacramento, to the Benbow Historic Inn, um, including famous actors like Clark Gable and others. But they've never had a, a naturalist program, a guide program. It's always been just self-exploration. So I'm really excited to have been brought onto the company with the goal and intention of developing a nature guiding program, a naturalist program. So last summer we just got started and we're gonna further develop it and build it up and hopefully even hire on some additional um, naturalist guides. But being able to actually take our guests that a lot of them have visited the hotel for a, a wedding or a honeymoon in the past as a child. And then they have these great memories of the land. So getting to go out with folks that have these wonderful memories, but don't really understand the ecology and how amazing what they saw as a child was around them is just really special, helping them really fall in love with the, the hotel itself. What town are you closest to? Or are you in a town? We're in an unincorporated little community called Benbow that the family, it was this guy's um, sheep ranch. And then Mr. Benbow showed up and started uh, purchasing the land with the goal of building the hotel there. Officially, our address is Garberville, California, which oh, is a, a pretty unique and quirky community. Happy to answer any Garberville questions. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've not heard of that. Where is it from Arcata? Uh, about an hour south. An hour south. Okay. So you're you're uh, in between the Bay Area and Arcata. Yes. Yeah. We're only about four hours from the Bay Area and about four hours from Sacramento. So not too bad of a drive. Well, I've been up in that area, but I confess I've spent more time at Muir Woods and kind of the the Redwoods down right by the bay. But uh, guys, they're so dramatic everywhere you go. What do you enjoy most about that? That is really a tough question, Tim. I think kind of what you just said, you know, you've been to Muir Woods, you've never been up here. It's spectacular when you go into the forest. I get really picky and want to show people ecologically like the biggest tree the highest concentrations the really amazing amazing stuff but then as a local naturalist interpreter what really excites me and I'm reminded of every single time 
is it's just amazing for these folks, regardless, even if we're not finding the biggest, the most amazing, actually having some in-depth time in the woods, seeing organisms, seeing life that they're not used to, touching the earth, smelling the dirt, feeling the wind, getting their socks soggy, having some real life experiences that are positive, um, pushing their boundaries a little bit, just that by itself, seeing their eyes open, um, it's pretty spectacular. Can you, characterize, so just, can you characterize your typical customers? I mean, is this mostly uh, 50 age plus uh, folks from, that come up or is it kind of everybody? Mostly couples. The age okay. demographic is tricky, but I get a lot of, of honeymooners and oh, couples, yeah. sort of a romantic place. Um, some families, so kind of 50-50, always over 30, usually not, you know, young kids are, are my groups. But um, yeah, 50 plus is often a, a typical uh, group there. How did the pandemic affect the business there? Um, it was massive and horrible. Uh, we had to completely shut down. Um I feel very lucky and fortunate being in the private industry because I know my situation and story is probably very different than a lot of others. As more of a, a leader of our organization, I was really fortunate that even though we had to close down the hotel, close the restaurant, we could not, we were not legally allowed to take any guests on interpretive programs. We just had to freeze in place and wait for the legislation to come out from our local Humboldt County as to how we as a private business could apply to get operational permits to move forward during COVID. So we refunded all of our guests, totally shut down, laid off all of our employees and sort of had just a skeleton crew ghost operations for a few months until documentation from Humboldt County started coming out, which was, relatively straightforward for lodging establishments. They gave us very specific guidelines, what you must do as a hotel to do reopening, how many guests you can have. But for outdoor adventure businesses and tour companies, we had to do a lot of redoing the paperwork with Humboldt County because just the technical parts of the legislation made it really difficult to get approval to take folks back out into the outdoors. Um, so I got a really great education and a lot more well-versed with legislation documents and working with the county. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of doing things right and getting all your permits. And it just was, that was the most challenging aspect, but I'm very fortunate to have been employed through the entire part. So are you the manager of the inn itself? We are partnered with a campground as well. So I direct the inn's kind of concierge and tour program and then manage our connected campground and RV park. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, you know, for me, that makes it more fun. Uh, even though I worked at a state park as my first interpretive naturalist job, I had general park ranger responsibilities like respond to accidents, write camping permits, uh, clean the restroom. <laughs> and that's all, it's all good because first of all, it's humbling. You get to do a lot of 
maintenance work and uh, respect the other people who do maintenance work as a full-time job. And we kind of had to flex if, if the park was crowded, we all pitched in wherever it was needed. Many, many years later, I built a restaurant and ran it at a nature center. I, I ran being the executive director of the nature center meant that if we were slammed in the restaurant, I got to wash dishes. Yep. So it's not a bad thing. No, not at all. I, I love it as well. And uh, a quality maintenance person is worth their weight in gold. It's amazing. Yeah, I think the thing that's fascinated me about this field is that you work very closely with people. But if you love forests or you love history, you get to share that in a very personal way. And uh, Facebook has been a really funny thing for me because I actually have people that I met 50 years ago in a state park occasionally friend me on Facebook and say, I remember you. I went to one of your programs and then they'll quote the year and I'll go, oh my goodness. I hope I was oh. doing something interesting back then, but they assure me I was. So. Yeah, I feel helping with property management just has gone such a, in this community, especially in the northern part near Redwood National Park, we have a very strong agricultural rural community. They're all in the logging industry. Um, so a lot of times coming in as a, a naturalist interpreter, trying to share education about the trees, you get a, a knee-jerk reaction from some of these folks who are, who are my colleagues and the owners of the business. We actually used to work at a, a former timber mill itself. So I think, yeah, it goes a really long way and all interpreters just try to be more human, but when you can actually work with them down on the ground, help them sharpen the tool, lift the log. Hey, I'm not an expert on this. Please show me your great skills as an outdoorsman and a repairman. I think seeing people like us roll up their sleeves and get to work with them uh, really goes a long way. I like that. I when I was a nature center director, the most there was uh, high unemployment in Pueblo, Colorado, where I was, and the most common bumper sticker in town was out of work and hungry, eat an environmentalist. And yet yep. here I am starting, literally getting a nature center built up in that environment of unemployment and some bitterness towards environmental interests. And I just viewed that as a challenge. Uh, we're all people trying to make a living and trying to understand the world around us. And I ended up with a lot of unemployed steel workers as both employees and friends. And because that was the layoff, they had fired 5,000 steel workers during a slowdown. And uh, those folks were really hurting. And I felt it was important that as a nature center, we'd be a part of their support, not a part of their conflict in any way. So that's great. Yeah. The same exact things happened here. There was a lot of automation and I, I like to blame one greedy business owner and he kind of did a really good job at convincing your average mill worker that it, it wasn't his business policies, his private practices that were making these changes. It was the, the environmentalists and Redwood National Park and the federal government. They're coming in, they're taking your jobs. They don't know what they're talking about. So I think helping them under, like, we, we all love this place. We're all humans. Let's work together. Um, 
it's a major unfortunate thing that's happened around here is this us versus them, the environmentalists versus the agricultural industry. And I, I think it's important for the environmentalists to recognize and acknowledge that these folks, they've all lived here. They love this place. This is their family's land. Like they're actually trying their best and they want to do right. For the most part, they just might not know exactly how to adjust their business into modern day and they need our help and education. Go ahead. The owners and the manager that I used to work with actually, and, and I love her, this is all positive statements. They're wonderful people, I love this family. But when Redwood National Park was being expanded in 1978, the community actually cut this really large log into what they felt looked like a peanut and then it went on a protest parade of 18-wheel logging trucks, and they took this peanut to the White House, Washington, D.C., to tell President Carter, hey, buddy, we don't appreciate you trying to expand this park. It might be peanuts to you, but it's our lives. It's our economy. And the war cry was less parks, more jobs. Apparently, President Carter obviously sent that log back here to Humboldt County and it sits unmarked, no interpretation. It's a really great story. People need to know about this. It just sits unmarked at a local gas station. Um, but this community has had a hard time recovering from that animosity. That's a really great story. And uh, it reminds me, my nature center was across from a gravel company, and they were strip mining the river valley, the Arkansas River Valley in Pueblo. And we were, uh, as nature center people, we were naturally a little concerned about the strip mining because they'd cut down the cottonwood forest and then mine gravel. And I got very well acquainted at rotary meetings with the general manager. And he, he did one of the most interesting things I've ever heard from someone. He said, instead of less of us arguing about what could be our differences, he says, why don't you come over to the gravel company and I'll give you a tour. You tell me what you'd like to see done differently. And if we can do it, we'll do it. And oddly, I said, you keep dumping these big concrete cow pies when your truck has come back with a yard of concrete on it you can't use. You dump it on the bank of the river and we're looking at concrete. And he said, concrete's beautiful. And I said, well, I can understand how you would feel that being in the concrete business. And I said, I see you burying big granite boulders, river boulders. He said, yeah, we, our, our crusher won't crush those, so we just bury them. I said, boy, we would love to see those on the banks. And he said, well, we can do that. So the next morning I come to work and the entire embankment opposite the nature center was river boulders. He literally sit a crew out overnight and had them re-rip-rap over the concrete with these beautiful granite river boulders, just as a token of saying, I wasn't kidding you. I really was serious about this. For me, it was a big lesson in uh, we need to find a way to work together. And you've, you've uh, aptly uh, talked about that as well. I'm curious, why did you take the Certified Interpretive Guide course? How did you learn about it? You know, I've heard about it 
over the years so many times and I, I've honestly always wanted to take it. I, I think it's just never fit into my schedule or I never was willing to open up my wallet and actually do it. Um, so I'm really proud and glad that I did. A big part of the reason that I wanted to do this was the, the building of the program at the Benbow Inn. And I really want to move forward with the, the next part, the, the guide training course. Um, so I, I've honestly heard about it for many years. And my colleagues, the last time I heard of it was when my Friends of the Dunes colleague, a wonderful organization here in Humboldt County, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service was offering it through the NAI. And I, I just wasn't quick enough to get on the list. So I missed the last slot. And that was about five or six years ago. Um, so us Humboldt County folks, we don't often leave this community. So I wanna be able to try to offer an additional National Association of Interpreter guide course in this community, hopefully as the years go by. So you're planning on taking the trainer course? Yes, already enrolled. Wonderful, when do you take it? Starts February 6th. Great. Well, I wish you well with that. Lisa Brochu, my wife, and I have been training partners for a couple of decades. And uh, we started that Certified Interpretive Guide course in 2000. And one of the great joys of training over a thousand trainers in our tenure as executives at National Association for Interpretation was that we learned as much from our students as they would have gotten from us. And I think you're gonna find as a trainer that a lot of talented people take the course with you and uh, you leave feeling refreshed, enlightened, re-stimulated, it's just pretty cool. I'm pretty excited. I was really excited, Tim, and I had to brag and show off to the owner. You probably can't see it on there, but that you and Lisa wrote the book and we're on there. Um, I was really excited about having you as the instructor for the guide course. For any of our listeners, I would just tell you the certified interpretive guide credential. You can register for it at interpnet.com, I-N-T-E-R-P-N-E-T dot C-O-M. And you pull down under certification to a calendar and it'll show you. Uh, I think the face-to-face -face courses are better to be very frank with you. And I know you had the virtual course with us. Um, guess what? We live on a coffee farm on the big island of Hawaii. And if we offer a certified interpretive guide course here, we will not even get the required five minimum to hold the course. We're just too far from any other people doing our work. So the virtual course for me has been a lifesaver because I get to continue in my profession and work with people like you, but uh, we're doing it. And, and you live in a fairly distant from some of the other opportunities probably, yeah? Yes, looking at the calendar, I think we're in a good position where we're far up far away from other ones, but next to the university and nearby some communities that I think would have a, a strong desire to, to take it. When you say the university, what's your local school? When I was a student, we were uh, Humboldt State University, but as of last year, the title has changed to California, Cal Poly Humboldt, California Polytechnic, which is a great thing for this community. It 
should mean we get a lot more funding for research and the university will grow significantly, which I'm really excited about. I didn't know that. Um, there was a very strong interpretive program at Humboldt for many years. Carolyn Widener Ward. Yeah. Do you, do you know? I don't know, I don't know her name, but Jen Tarleton okay. was there. Oh, yeah, Jen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, it's a small world. I find the other thing that goes with becoming a certified interpretive trainer and doing the CIG course is you will meet people everywhere you travel. Yeah, I had Jen Tarleton and Jennifer Ortega were both very wonderful interpreters. Um, happy to have them in this community. Oh, that's great. I First of all, I think I find anybody who does our kind of work feels a sense of camaraderie when you do you meet someone else doing it. Um, that's the other part that goes with taking the trainer course or the guide course. So we're always happy to do that. Have, have you ever been to an NAI conference, uh, national or regional? I have never been, no. Well, I will just encourage you to do that because it's another great opportunity to uh, meet other folks in the field. And there's a fairly active chapter uh, that includes Northern California and Northern Nevada. And oddly, here in Hawaii, we're in your chapter. Now, I have to say, oh, cool. because they built this ocean between you and us, so we don't get over to California as often as I'd like. But uh they're, they have a regional workshop each year, and then the national conference is usually in November, and both are great chances to network with other people in the field. So earning the CIG credential, you also become an NAI member, so that's uh, you, you should be getting lots of promotional material about that thing. So what, what are you doing besides putting together tours and taking people out to learn more about the redwoods uh professionally or just for fun either one well i'm just completely obsessed with humboldt county tim so i i get involved with all sorts of different things i i volunteer with our local visitors bureau and right now humboldt county has some challenges with tourism marketing and bringing people into our area so we're we're working really hard on talking to our board of supervisors and other industry leaders and hotels about all these natural amazing features that we have to offer and that there's just this pent up energy from everybody post covid for vacations incorporating lack of other people serenity immersion in nature um, authentic intimate experiences with humans versus cookie cutter non-intimate, you know, copy-paste experiences. And if this area, Humboldt County, has anything, it is that we are small, we are local, people will say hi and be friendly, the good ones. Um, and I think we just don't really do enough letting the world know that, yeah, even in California, you can get away from the craziness and go to this really awesome hidden gem and have some really fun real life in some of the most beautiful places uh, in the world. Uh -huh. I'm wanting to come and visit and see the Binbo Inn and actually have that experience. Uh, yeah, there's so much. Like for somebody like you, I would 
want you to go to some of the parts of the forest that we're just starting to learn about. I'm talking since like 2016, which in my mind is mind-blowingly recent for us learning really important forest ecology stories about the redwoods. Not to mention we have some really spectacular dune ecosystems up here in Eureka where people that are interested in odd botany and weird plants, they just have some amazing times. So yeah, especially those folks, odd botany, the mysteries of uh, vascular plants, there's some really crazy things around here. Yeah, you know, I did my master's degree in botany and I thought it was just preparation to being a teacher because um, I was a bachelor's degree in zoology undergrad. And um, in botany, I was fascinated with what they did in the laboratory, but the best part of it were the field trips where they would take us out. And I'll never forget uh, Dr. Clark Ashby, this wonderful gentleman in our department who would take a, uh, one of those, I've forgotten the name of it, but the little drill that you can drill in the soil with. And he would punch it down into the soil and show us the A and B horizons of the soils and then tell us why big blue stem, one of the tall grasses of the Illinois prairie where I grew up, would be on real deep soils. And Elliot's broom sedge would be on these very clay-packed, little areas and he could tell just by looking at the dirt what was going to grow there and I, I was astonished now I'm a coffee farmer so I just sent off a bunch of my soil to be tested and I hope that the gentleman who did the test will come back and tell me what are we missing to have an even better coffee crop and that sort of thing so here I am 50 years later uh, still learning about botany and what makes things grow and why do they grow here? That's what I love about being a general naturalist interpreter and having colleagues like Friends of the Dunes is having these PhD specialists in their field that can really help dork out. There's this wonderful um, entomologist in our community. His name's Pete Haggard, Peter Haggard. And I know walking out in the Lanphier Dunes with him, we're usually obsessed with the plants, but this man is so amazing. He just can see these insect trails and evidence of them from miles away, things that even as he points them out, I just can't see them. He'll just shove his hand into a sand dune and magically pull out the exact insect that he was wanting to find. It is just spectacular. But there's this thing I got to tell you about, Tim, because I'd love to show you. It's I'll have to be careful to say it, having a master's in botany. Sometimes botanists oh, no. do not appreciate this being called in albino tree but we have these sequoia sempervirens coast redwoods and there's a phenomenon that they'll actually live and grow without chlorophyll oh, and my. their foliage and their stems will literally be paper white ghost white it is just spectacular we're still trying to fully decipher the why behind it but it's really leading to forest communication and, and trees working synergistically to support each other. It's out of control, really special. I've never heard of that. That's really cool. Uh, I can tell you that the, the professors I loved most were those that were good interpreters and they actually told you background stories very often behind 
why something was named what it is or why a, a term like albino tree would be used. But uh, you're right. Your first reaction is, no, trees always have chlorophyll. What do you see yourself headed in your interpretive program there at Benbo? Is, uh, what kind of tours do you think are going to have the attraction power that you need or want to make them successful for you? You know, that's a good question. I, I see it as two-sided. Um, unfortunately, a, a challenge I always find is helping people understand why they need a nature immersion experience. I think COVID has helped people understand intrinsically a little bit there. But what gets me really excited is not just being a guide myself, but if I can have the opportunity to excite other guides, to excite other people, and that's the point that I really want to get to. Um, a thing we've started to market that gets marketing attention, but not often or not always the action to book a program, but opens people's minds is I offer what's called a, a forest bathing experience. It's a new buzzword that comes from a Japanese concept that's been around for a very long time. And the concept of people spending times in the woods slowly, intentionally for the idea of mental refreshment has been along even longer than that. So it's not really a new thing, but it's a new buzzword in the Western world. So that's helped us market and get attention but I, I really think just what I want us to focus on is intimate forest experiences, just small groups, sort of like your typical uh, park ranger nature walk and just small, intimate, slow uh, forest nature experiences. That's great. I, I had the unique opportunity many years ago to speak at a nature school in Japan called the Whole Earth Nature School. Became very good friends with one of the people that worked there. And he now has his own uh, kind of glamping resort that looks up at Mount Fuji. And I'm really aware that people there treasure those intimate experiences with nature. And he took me into an ice cave, uh, literally a lava tube, that had a floor of ice on Mount Fuji. And I'm a little bit of a claustrophobic person. And so it was odd to go underground and it was odd to find that I'm on a big slab of ice and it sloped downward. And I said, so where does that go? He says, don't go down there. It's, you could slip. <laughs> it's a lava tube. So uh, now I live on an active volcano. So I fully appreciate that. Uh, at, exploring lava tubes may not be my thing as someone who doesn't do well in enclosed spaces so one more thing about that um forest bathing experience i was a naysayer about going to the training myself because just doing formal interpretation but just like the experience you had with that wonderful person just i myself analyze too much and focus too much on the education parts or what do i want these other people to understand and learn and so realize that I myself as a naturalist wasn't going and immersing myself enough what I'm trying to encourage other people to do. Well, how about we ourselves do that a lot more? And when I take the time to immerse myself, 
not analyze, not overthink it, not plan out my day, not build out my schedule. It makes my programs more enjoyable because I'm more calm, I'm more content, I'm happier. And folks can see that through our eyes, through our spirits, right? When you can see that somebody is happy, is enjoying what they're telling you about, is honest about this experience. Um, and yeah, it's just so much better when I practice what I preach and spend some time out there myself. Is there is there anything about the uh, guide course you took that you remember as being kind of a aha moment or very special? Yeah, seeing everybody, learning from everybody and remembering that this is such an awesome universal concept. It's not just nature guides and naturalists. That was the big no duh aha epiphany once again was oh boy oh wow this is universal communication skills that can be used in many different realms and i really love and appreciate seeing good interpretation in non-nature related areas uh, that was really important for me yeah i think the last day of the course is fun because we uh we watch everybody who took the course with us give their own presentation and you get a sense that uh a lot of people take this a lot of different directions and uh, I've been to good beer interpretation programs. I've been to wonderful cultural programs. It's, it's not just one thing. So it's, it's an approach to communication to try to help people make a connection that matters to them. I've enjoyed catching up with you. You know, the, the one thing that's missing when you have, 15 people in a CIG course is you don't get to spend a lot of personal time chatting with one person. Uh, thanks for taking. I totally agree. I thanks. appreciate you too, Tim. Well, thanks, Justin, for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. Next week, Gabby Plumasol from Paris, France. She's an, a trainer, an interpretive trainer, an entrepreneur, an interpreter of natural and cultural heritage. Also, the next week, Two weeks from today, uh, we will be talking with Dr. Ted Cable, who's a well-known author and interpretation, trainer, birder, and retired professor from Kansas State University. I'd also like to thank Mark Stoffel for use of Huddy's World in this introduction music and at the end. August 21 to 23, Lisa Brochu will offer an interpretive planning course from 8 to 11 a.m. Hawaii time via Zoom. And you can register for that at heartfeltassociates.com. Thanks for joining us today on Reflections on Interpretation. I'm Tim Merriman, your host. Aloha. Aloha.